exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Martin Luther once said, Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Many of you know that Martin Luther was a monk in the 16th century, and he wrote of his experience as a monk in that monastery. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. He was incredibly devout, and as a monk, he would obsess over his sin. That Luther would spend up to six hours a day in the confession booth confessing his sins to a priest. And then oftentimes, as he was finally leaving the confession booth, he would remember another sin and then rush back to the booth. He would oftentimes annoy the priests, and they would chastise him and say, Luther, your sin is not that big of a deal. He would fast for days and do everything he could to earn God's favor. And and thinking back on the time, Luther said that, that he actually hated God because God was so righteous. Luther hated God because God was holy, and Luther simply understood how unholy he was, and he hated the holy God who was going to punish sinners. But as Martin Luther was studying through the book of Romans, he realized that, yes, he was a sinner, that, yes, God was righteous, but he also realized that God loves sinners, and he loves sinners so much that he sent Jesus to do what mankind could not That Jesus lived the perfect life that Martin Luther could not. That Jesus died the death that Martin Luther deserved. And that now through faith in Jesus, God would give Luther Christ's perfect righteousness. And you see what Martin Luther discovered in the 16th century is simply what the first century church called the gospel. Most of the churches in Luther's day had completely lost sight of the concept of mercy and grace. But when Luther read Romans and rediscovered the gospel news, he became a changed man. Luther wrote about the experience saying, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And it was in that moment that not only was Martin Luther transformed, but it also led to the greatest revival of the Christian faith since the beginning of the church which is what we call the Protestant Reformation. You see, the church in Martin Luther's day taught that there was no way to know whether or not you were going to heaven. The Christians in Luther's day had no way to know if their sins were going to be forgiven because many people thought that the only way people would live a good and moral life is if they were constantly threatened with hell. Like that, that part of the service that we do every Sunday, the assurance of pardon where you're reminded of the gospel and assured that you're forgiven, they did not have that part in their services. And many in Luther's day told Luther, look, if you're going to teach someone that they can be saved by grace alone through faith alone, then people are going to live like heathens. And it's true that being afraid of hell will cause many people to have a surface level obedience And now in our day, there are many who have swung to the exact opposite extreme. They're not teaching that you have to work hard and be good to earn heaven. But they're saying you can have Jesus as your Savior, but he doesn't really have to be your Lord. Meaning that you can believe in Jesus, live like a heathen, and still totally expect to be on your way to heaven. I even talked to someone in our area who told me that if someone believed in Jesus one time, 
then they could deny Jesus for the rest of their life and even be an atheist and still expect to go to heaven. The problem is, is that we don't see that kind of thinking in the Bible at all. It's totally foreign to the New Testament. And what Luther and even the other reformers who came after him, what they understood is that while good works are not the cause of salvation, they are the natural result of salvation. That good works are the fruit of true faith, not the root of true faith. Or in other words, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. And my prayer this morning is that we as a church would be a people saved totally by grace, dedicated, devoted to this idea of grace and mercy, and also totally devoted to good works. Because in Titus chapter 3, we're going to find three results of insisting upon the gospel. If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1185. At our church, we use the English Standard Version or the ESV for short. And look, there's a lot of great English translations out there. But just as a side note, uh, we preach out of the ESV, and I'd highly recommend that if you don't have an ESV Bible for Sunday mornings, that you get one just because we preach verse by verse here, and it's so much easier to follow along if you have the same translation. And if you don't have an ESV Bible, feel free to take one of the pew Bibles as our gift to you. Uh, But as you're turning to Titus chapter 3, let me remind you, Paul left Titus as a young pastor in Crete so that Titus could finish putting the churches into order. So chapter one was about pastors. Chapter two was about church members. And now chapter three is about those outside of the church, the government and our neighbors. Titus is an incredibly practical book for how the church should be run and how we as Christians are to live our lives. But remember that at the foundation of everything Paul is teaching is the gospel. The gospel is at the core of everything we do. And Paul's going to finish this letter the way he started it, by commanding us to insist upon the gospel. And in Titus 3, we're going to find three results of insisting upon the gospel. First, in verses 1 through 7, insisting on the gospel leads us to love all people. Second, in verses 8 to 11, insisting on the gospel will lead us to discipline those who deny the gospel. And third, in verses 12 through 15, insisting on the gospel will lead us to sacrifice for Christ's mission. Insisting on the gospel will lead us to love all people, to discipline those who deny the gospel, and to sacrifice for Christ's mission. And with that being said, let's pray and let's finish this glorious letter. Dear Heavenly Father, During Jesus' life, many followed him at first, but they fell away because they believed with their heads and not with their hearts. And we ask that this morning this not be true of us. We beg you that you would give us a living faith that leads to godly living. We ask that you would give light to our eyes, understanding to our minds, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, may the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look at me to Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Let's stop there. The people living on the island of Crete were especially rebellious. They had a reputation for it. And partly because it was a lot harder for Rome to control them because they were separate from the mainland. And, they had a, and because of that, they had a reputation for uprisings. 
So Paul tells Titus to remind the churches there that Christians are called to submit before the government authorities. And notice that Paul does not say, submit to the good and godly rulers and rebel against the bad ones. No, of course he does not say that. In our country, the government is becoming more and more wicked by the day, but the United States still pales in comparison to the evils of the Roman Empire. Yet what's amazing in verse 1 is that Paul still told these Christians to submit. Why on earth would he tell them to do that? Well, because Paul understood that rulers and authorities are both established by God. That every prince, every prime minister, every president has no power apart from the power that God has given them. And as Christian, God calls us to obey our leaders. Now, we know, of course, there are exceptions to the rules. If the government commands us to do something the Bible forbids, then we have to obey God rather than men. If the government forbids us to do something the Bible commands, then we have to obey God rather than men. But the general rule is that we are to submit and obey our rulers. And I'll just say as a side note, the church did a terrible job at this during COVID. And I'll be the first to admit COVID was an incredibly complicated situation that from state to state, county to county, the regulations were different where there'd be some states I'd recommend the churches submit and other states I'd say rebel. Like in California, they weren't even allowed to sing. Um, But I think our heart and mindset going forward, because I'm praying that COVID is officially done. We're not expecting those kind of things in the future. But our heart going forward is to be able to submit and not trying to find the loophole that allows us to only follow the government's rule whenever we like what they have for us to say. Uh, I I once knew a woman who was a serious Bible reader. Uh, She was married to one of my professors in Bible college. And when she read in the book of Corinthians, there's this strange passage that talks about women covering their heads while they're in church. And she read that verse. And so for the next three months, she always wore a covering over her head while she was in church until she was convinced that that passage no longer applied to her. She didn't say, oh, I'm going to ignore that passage until I'm convinced that it's actually applying to me. She said, no, I'm going to obey until I realize that this doesn't apply to me. And I think that's the mindset we should have towards those who are in authority over us. And so Paul says that to these people on the island of Crete. And he tells them not only should they obey their rulers, but they should be ready for every good work, meaning that they should be actively doing good works within the community to help and improve the community. And on top of that, Paul keeps going in verse two. He says, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And what would this kind of person look like in our community? Verses one through two. Christians should have the best reputation of any group in any community that they live in. That even if people hate our message, even if people think we're narrow-minded and bigoted and backwards, they should love that we are their neighbors. Because Christians should be the last people to slander and to gossip. Christians should be the last people to quarrel. Christians should honor their leaders and love their neighbors as themselves, even when their leaders are wicked, especially when their leaders are wicked. And of course, we're still left with the question of why, Paul? What's our motivation for doing this? Why on earth should we submit to governments run by incompetent pagans? 
Why on earth should we be kind and courteous towards all people, even when the people we're surrounded by are utterly wicked and unkind to us? Well, look with me to verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And now we ask that question again. Why should we be good citizens even when our leaders are corrupt? Why should we be good neighbors even when our neighbors are wicked? Because we were once like them. And if you're a Christian in this room, remember back to that time before you became a Christian. Think back to the time before when you were lost and disobedient to when you were full of jealousy and hatred. Think back to when you were a slave to various passions and pleasure. That it does not matter how great of a saint you are now, all of us from the least to the greatest were once foolish, disobedient, and led astray. You see, here's the problem. All of us were born sinners. None of us was born any better than the other. All of us were born sinners, so we're naturally selfish. We're naturally disobedient. But when you have a baby, your newborn does not care about what you're doing, whether or not you're busy, hungry, exhausted, or even have had a shower in five days. What do they care about? Me, me, me. And I said this before, I think if babies had the power of communication, all they would say would be cuss words. Vodi Bakum once said, uh, he's the dean of theology at the African Christian University, he said this, people who don't believe we're born sinners don't have children. That's not a little angel, that's a viper in a diaper. <laughs> and the reason God makes babies so small is so they can't kill you. And the reason God makes them so cute is so that you don't kill them. Our sinfulness, too, is not something that we grow out of, but it defines our very species. This is our problem. This is our condition. This is our curse, that we were all born wrong the first time, which is why Jesus told Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We don't need to try harder. We don't need just a little bit more religion. What we need is total and complete transformation. We need to be remade, which means you and I can do absolutely nothing to save ourselves. But the good news is that our God can do what we can't. Look to verses four to seven. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen? We could just stop right there. That text is so glorious. Scholars actually think that verses four through seven were an early hymn in the church. And as Paul's trying to make a point about how we should love other people because we were once like them, he quotes this hymn that, that the, the church would have known very well. And if you're a Christian in this room, you used to be totally depraved, a wretched sinner, but now... 
You're not. You have been justified. You guys know what that word justified means? It's just as if I'd never sinned. It's just as if I'd lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. To be justified means to be declared righteous. And Paul wants it to make it crystal clear that you didn't become righteous by anything that you did. It's not because you did any good works to earn that righteousness. No, not because of works done in righteousness. Not because we met God halfway. Not because we were baptized or went to church or prayed the sinner's prayer. Why are we righteous? Because according to his mercy, we have been washed by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What is regeneration? Regeneration is what God does in the heart of a non-believer that makes them into a believer. Regeneration is that process from Ezekiel 36 where God takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. Regeneration is where God causes you to be born again and opens your eyes to the truth of how much of a sinner you are and leads you to Jesus. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I've heard people compare salvation to like a man drowning. We're all sinners, they say, and we're drowning in the ocean until God threw us a life raft, but it's still up to us to grab the life raft and to pull ourselves in. That is not the biblical picture. Romans 3 says that no one seeks for God, meaning that we never even look for the life raft. Ephesians 2 says that we're dead in sin, meaning we couldn't even reach for the life raft if we wanted to. Because dead men don't reach. We don't just need a life raft. We need resurrection. Truth is, we were not drowning. We were dead at the bottom of the sea. And what Titus 3 tells us is that God did not just throw us a life raft. Titus 3 tells us that God Almighty dove to the bottom of the sea, rescued us, breathed life into our lungs, and brought us back from the dead. Titus 3 tells us that God sent his spirit to resurrect our dead souls and to lead us to believe in Jesus. And that is the miracle that God has done in the heart of every Christian who has ever lived. And when you first believed in Jesus, it may have felt like the most natural decision you'd ever made in your whole life. But in the background without you even maybe realizing it, if you believed in Jesus, then God has performed a miracle in your heart. For some people, that looks like a dramatic conversion like Saul on the road to Damascus where he's blinded and the scales fall off his eyes. For some, it's like Lydia where God simply opened her heart and she believed. But if you're a Christian in this room, you are a new creation. If right now your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, then the Holy Spirit has washed you clean and led you to believe in Jesus so that now you have been justified, declared totally righteous in the eyes of God and an heir of the hope of eternal life. Amen? Amen. And listen, if verse 3 is not about your past, if verse 3 is about your present, then there's hope for you. Because though you deserve eternity in hell for all the evil things you've done, the good news is that the goodness and kindness of God has appeared through Jesus. 
He was the only man since Adam who was not born a sinner. But unlike Adam, Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father and then took the punishment that Adam deserved. That Jesus was crucified as a substitute for all who would believe and then three days later rose from the grave, defeating sin, death, and the devil. And now, if you feel the Spirit calling to your heart, if you feel conviction for your sin, if you realize your need for the grace of God and the mercy of God, repent. Turn from your sin and put your faith alone in Jesus and you will be justified in the eyes of Almighty God. And by the blood of Christ, you'll become an heir of the hope of eternal life. Amen, somebody. That's the hope we believe in. That's the gospel we believe in. In verses four through seven, this glorious gospel presentation, that's not Paul's main point. That's the foundation for his point. Remember, Paul started in verses one through two by reminding us that we're called to show love and kindness and courtesy to all people, even to your rulers and neighbors. So we ask the question one more time, why should we? And the answer is because you were once like them until God changed you. And now you and I are called to be kind and compassionate and understanding to those in this lost world so that they too might receive the grace of God. And that's the first result of insisting on the gospel, that we would love all people. But there's another result of insisting on the gospel. Insisting on the gospel also leads us to discipline those who deny the gospel. Look with me to verses 8 through 11. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Stop there. What's absolutely amazing in these verses is that Paul starts off in verse 8, and he tells Titus to insist on these things. And he's talking about everything he just covered in verses four through seven. He's talking about the gospel. And by insisting on the gospel of God's grace and mercy, Paul tells us you're going to get a church full of people who are devoted to good works. If you want a church full of holy people, you don't dangle their feet over the fires of hell. You fill their hearts with the glory of heaven. If you want a church of people who are zealous for good works. You don't hammer them with the Ten Commandments. You hit them with grace and forgiveness and regeneration and justification. You insist on the gospel because the gospel is so powerful, so life-changing, that when people truly believe it and embrace it, it changes everything about them. And now the question of these verses. What happens... When you have a people in the church who have not been transformed by the gospel, what happens when you have people in the church who do not insist on the gospel? Well, that's what these verses are all about. In verses 8 through 11, we find two groups. You got the gospel group and you have the foolish controversies group. You find those who are devoted to good works and you find those who are divisive. Now, when Paul's talking about foolish controversies, he's not talking about modern music versus hymns. 
He's not talking about red carpet versus green carpet or stained glass windows versus clear windows. Those kinds of controversies are definitely foolish. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul's talking about those who are dividing over the essentials of the gospel message. Remember the false teachers in Crete who were teaching that on top of believing in Jesus, you still had to keep all the laws of Moses in order to be saved. Essentially, you had to become Jewish before you could become a Christian. And these teachers would have said, oh, of course we believe in Jesus. Of course you have to trust in Jesus. But you also have to do these works in order to be forgiven. And by adding works to the gospel, these teachers were actually teaching a different gospel. So what do you do when someone in your church is believing and teaching a different gospel. Well, verse 20, Paul is crystal clear. Warn them once, warn them twice, three strikes, and they're out. Now, this isn't talking about a new Christian who's still struggling to understand deep things. Like if you have a new Christian who's like, I don't understand the Trinity. That's not like kick them out. This is talking about teachers. Teachers who should know better, who repeatedly and unapologetically contradict the core of the gospel. And in that case, they need to be removed from the church, both for the sake of the church and for the sake of the person contradicting the gospel. You've probably heard of this process. This whole process is actually called church discipline. And Jesus actually explains this more in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus said, when your brother sins against you, you're to go to him and privately rebuke him. Don't go telling everyone in the church. Don't go to the pastors and tell them about the problem. Go to them privately first to protect their reputation. But if they refuse to repent, then take one or two others with you once again to protect their reputation, but urge them to repent again. And finally, Jesus told us that a person even refuses then, then you take it to the church. And at that point, if they refuse to listen to the church and they are boldly unrepentant in whatever they're doing or whatever they're believing, that's when we practice church discipline and we remove them from the membership of our church. And we would even urge them not to take communion until they repent. And Paul here in Titus 3 is simply following the pattern Jesus gave. Warn them once, warn them twice. And if they still refuse to repent, then the church should remove them from membership. Now, that doesn't mean these teachers weren't allowed to come to church anymore. Every single time I've been in a church where someone has been under discipline, the attitude of church has always been, please come back. When Paul says to have nothing to do with these divisive uh, people, he means, first off, they should not be teachers anymore because they're teaching a false gospel. And officially, they need to be removed from the membership roles of the church. Not that we banish them and never talk to them again. That when we practice church discipline here, I'm going to urge you to pray for those people, to show kindness to those people, to urge them to repent and come back to church. But have nothing more to do with them means that we no longer recognize them as a Christian. The gospel changes the way we live. And if someone is ever openly living in unrepented sin and they're refusing to listen to the whole church, it's at that point that we as a church can no longer have any confidence that they're a brother or sister in Christ. And the same goes especially for those who deny the essential teachings of the gospel. And as Christians, let me tell you, we have incredible freedom to disagree on a ton of stuff. We can disagree on spiritual gifts. We can disagree on the end times. We can disagree on predestination and the role of the government. A million different things we have the freedom to disagree with as Christians. 
But when someone starts adding works to salvation, that's when they're denying one of the essentials of the Christian faith. If someone were to deny that Jesus is truly God, one with the Father, that's when we say we no longer believe in the same Jesus. And the Bible says that after two warnings, they must be removed from the church's membership. And I understand this whole process sounds incredibly harsh. And that's why church discipline is not popular today, even though it's clearly biblical. But Paul is not writing this stuff because he wants revenge. Remember what he said in Titus 1, verse 13. He said, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. At the heart of this letter, Paul is actually writing these things because he wants these false teachers to believe the truth. Paul is actually writing these harsh words out of a spirit of care and compassion for these enemies of the gospel. That Paul's telling Titus to discipline those who contradict the gospel precisely because he cares about these teachers. And he wants them, even through this difficult process, to recognize their errors and to embrace the truth of the gospel. And that's the second result of insisting on the gospel. Disciplining those who deny the gospel. But then that leads us to our final result. Insisting on the gospel leads us to sacrifice for Christ's mission. Look with me to verse 12 to the end of the book. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. As Paul closes his letter, he fills Titus in on his plans, but he also lets Titus and all the Christians in Crete by extension know that Zenos and Apollos need to be funded for their next missionary journey. So as Paul's talking about cases of urgent need, he's probably talking about them. In many ways, Paul's letter to Titus isn't just a letter about how to order the church. It's also a missionary fundraising letter. Now, Paul's been telling us, believe the gospel, display the gospel. Believe the gospel, display the gospel over and over again. And now he's sending out two missionaries to share the gospel. And he says, here's your perfect opportunity to devote yourself to good works. It's, it's Paul, something that Paul almost says in passing, but it's important to say that insisting on the gospel will lead us to sacrifice for the sake of Christ's mission. Because when you realize how important the gospel is and how good the gospel is, then you want to do everything within your power to make sure that the good news of Jesus is taken to the ends of the earth. That's where I don't know if you realize, but about 20 to 25% of all the money you give here at Oregon Baptist Church goes straight to missionaries. And I know that's a lot. I remember hearing one church that was in the Southern Baptist Convention that they were very proud. We give 10% of our money to missionaries. Because the average Southern Baptist church only gives about 3 to 4% to missions. And that was one of the things that really impressed me about this church as I was looking for churches to serve is that this is a church that supports missions. And I'd even encourage you that if one of the ways, if you feel led, support other missionaries, continue to support the ones here. I've got a good friend in Utah who's a full-time missionary amongst the Mormons, and he needs funding. I've got a good friend who's starting a seminary in Abu Dhabi, mostly with people who are going to go and take the gospel into countries and then probably die there, and they need funding. And just as a passing comment that uh, 
The workers are few, but the harvest is plentiful. And the Lord leads you to sacrifice in that way, I'd encourage you to. Now, remember, my prayer this morning was that we as a church would be a people saved totally by grace and totally devoted to good works. Because in Titus 3, we found three results of insisting on the gospel. Insisting on the gospel leads us to love all people, to discipline those who deny the gospel, and to sacrifice for Christ's mission. So let me ask you, what does your life look like? How good are you at submitting to the government? I know that's one area I struggle with. How good of a neighbor are you? How committed are you to Christ's mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth? And if you're not any of these things, have you really been radically transformed by the good news of Jesus? Have you been born again? Has God really done that miracle in your heart? Well, I have four pastoral charges and four ways that we can be a people saved totally by grace and devoted to good works. First pastoral charge, put your faith alone in the gospel. Put your faith alone in the gospel. God made him who knew no sin to be a sacrifice for sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Everything starts with a knowledge of the gospel Jesus was the Messiah, the pure sacrifice, the perfect Savior. No works are needed other than the works of Jesus. And if you turn from your sin today and put your faith alone in Jesus, you will be justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God Almighty. And so if you're here today and you haven't believed in Jesus, put your faith alone in his gospel before you even go to sleep tonight. Second pastoral charge, protect the gospel within the church. Protect the gospel within the church. Now, I recognize church discipline is not the most fun topic. I know church discipline seems harsh, but you have to admit it's clearly biblical. And when church discipline is done rightly, not only does it protect the integrity of the gospel message, not only does it protect the unity of the church as a whole, not only does it protect our reputation as a church within the community, but it's also a loving act of kindness towards whoever we're warning and disciplining. Church discipline should always be practiced with the hope of restoration, not with the goal to hurt or to shame someone, but to lead them to repentance. We do it because we care about the people in the church and we want to hold them accountable biblically. And we do it ultimately because if we're going to be a people who insist on the gospel, we need to be a people who strive to protect the gospel. Third pastoral charge, display the effects of the gospel with your life. Display the effects of the gospel with your life. If you bear the name of Jesus, you are an ambassador for Christ. Primarily as someone who brings the message of Jesus to others, but also in the way you live your life as a citizen, as a neighbor, as a church member. And the way that you live either brings honor or dishonor to the name of Jesus. So display the effects of the gospel with your life. But also remember, you'll only be able to do that if you insist on the gospel, which leads me to my final pastoral charge. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. I shared this quote three weeks ago, and I'm going to share it again because it's the perfect way for us to end our series in the book of Titus. In the words of Pastor John Piper, You never outgrow your need for the gospel. You never graduate to a course where the gospel should not be at the center of the curriculum. 
There is no post-gospel graduate school in the Christian life. The center of every ongoing growth in knowledge has Christ crucified, risen, received by faith alone like a little child at the center of the curriculum. And we're to receive that every day. When you get up in the morning, you preach the gospel to yourself. You say, my sins are forgiven today. They're forgiven not because I'm somebody, but because Jesus was somebody. He died for me. He rose again for me. He reigns for me. He's interceding for me. He pleads his blood for me. He's sovereign over me. He sent the spirit to me by faith alone. And you preach that message to yourself every day. And that's how we become a people zealous for good works, by insisting on the gospel. And on that note, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Titus. May your word take root in our hearts, be evident in our lives, transform this church and overflow into the world. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.